Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. This morning as we look at Genesis 45, we're going to really, from this chapter, we're going to look at the very important topic of forgiveness and reconciliation. And this idea of biblical idea or biblical concept of forgiveness and reconciliation is important to understand, especially in our relationships. Both the horizontal relationships that we have with people, as well as our vertical relationship with God. As Christians, our understanding of forgiveness and reconciliation will have a significant impact on how we respond to people when people sin against us. Whether it's in our homes, in our church families, in our neighborhoods or elsewhere in the world. And furthermore, when we, we sin against God, again, our understanding of God's forgiveness and reconciliation that He has brought about through His Son will impact how our understanding is, will impact the way we relate to Him on a daily basis. So this is an important topic and a topic I trust as we go through this chapter that we will understand uh, or even just be reminded of once again. Now in the last few chapters in Genesis, we have been seeing of of how Joseph has been testing his brothers to see if they had truly changed. And God, through Joseph, was working, bringing about an awareness of their guilt and their sin. And we saw how they were being repentant, Joseph's brothers. And last week we saw how Joseph, in fact, even created an opportunity where they could abandon the the favorite brother, the most beloved brother, Benjamin, created a scenario whereby they could repeat the same thing that they, they, could, they had done with Joseph many years ago. But we saw last week that the brothers didn't abandon Benjamin. But they all returned and were willing to suffer along with Benjamin. And then we also saw then Judah stepping up, where he says that he will take the place of Benjamin. It was a moving scene. And all of that showed of how these brothers had changed by the grace of God. How they love each other and they are now more unified as a family. They are no no longer selfish men and they are no longer a divided family. Well, come come to Genesis 45 and we have another beautiful scene where then the forgiveness and the reconciliation 
actually takes place in the family. This family that has been so fractured for many, many years is now coming together and God is bringing this about. It's really the climax of the Joseph narrative. So God is going to bring this family together and then he's going to settle them in Egypt and he's going to preserve as a result the seed line, the promised seed line from whom the Messiah will come through this family. He's going to preserve that line. In fact, even in this chapter, we're going to see shadows of how God is going to reconcile sinful people to himself and to each other as a family of God. And I trust that practically as we, as we see this in this chapter, we would also think through how this understanding of forgiveness and reconciliation will impact our relationship with God, how we relate to God, and how we relate to others when there is sin. I've titled this morning's sermon as God's Reconciling Grace in Jacob's Family. We're going to look at this chapter under two headings. Joseph's revelation to the brothers in verses 1 through 15. And then in 16 through 28, we're going to see Jacob's invitation to live in Egypt. And through it all, we'll see the wonderful reconciling grace of God in this family. So firstly, Joseph revealing himself to his brothers. Genesis 45 and verse 1 onwards. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. So we've already seen Joseph on different occasions as he's beginning to see an acknowledgement of guilt from the brothers and certain changes where in those moments he goes out of the room to cry. And now that he's fully convinced his brothers have really changed, they've changed men. They're not selfish men anymore. They have regard for God and regard for each other. Where there's a genuine love for each other and he's convinced of that. And even Judah, as he saw, who said, please let Benjamin go and I will stay forever as a slave. You know, all of this, as Joseph has seen and heard all this, Joseph now cannot contain himself. And now it's time for him to reveal himself to his brothers because they're truly changed. And he wants them to know it's Joseph. And as he's getting emotional, Joseph tells everyone, leave the room, leave. Everyone leave the room, except for you men standing here, he tells the brothers. And Joseph 
begins to wail loudly. So much so that everyone outside the room can hear it. The soldiers and the servants and even Pharaoh's household hear, hears of it. Perhaps a messenger then goes and tells Pharaoh's household. Now I want you to think of as the brothers are standing in front of Joseph at this point. No one else in the room. And Joseph is wailing loudly like this. Think of these brothers' perspective. This is the prince of Egypt. We're in trouble because his silver cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And after all that Judah has said as well, Zaphnath Paniah, that's how they know him as, that's his Egyptian name that Pharaoh gave him. Zaphnath Paniah seems to be in deep distress. I'm sure the brothers were thinking, we're done for. Something is seriously wrong. And then Joseph speaks. No interpreter this time, but he speaks in their Hebrew language. Look at verse 3, where he says, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. And hearing about how his beloved father was lied to so many years ago, and the state he has been in all these years, and now the care and concerns the brothers now have for their father, Joseph even adds, and is my father still alive? I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence, is what the text says. The word for dismayed here can also be translated as, as terrified or alarmed. Again, think of it from the brother's perspective. They sold Joseph as a slave when he was 17 years old. Now he's 39 years old. It's, it's two years into the famine, as we will see. So 37 plus 2, 39 years old. And not only is now Joseph not dead, he's the ruler of Egypt. Joseph is Zaphnath Paniah. And Joseph has every right and even the authority now to kill them or torture them for what they did to him. We've seen how you know, these brothers, their hearts have already been softened to the guilt of their sin, as we've seen in the previous chapters. So the brothers now are, are terrified because they know they, have, they are guilty, they deserve only judgment, and they're thinking, that's probably what's going to come our way. But look at how Joseph responds to them gently. In order to help them understand that it really is him and how God has been working through everything that has happened. Verse 4. 
So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. I mean, they're shocked, they're terrified, uh, and he asked them to come near, they come near, and this is what Joseph says. I mean, this was something that his brothers had kept as top secret for 22 years. The only other person other than these brothers that would have known that his brothers sold Joseph as a slave was Joseph himself. No one else knew about this. So this is proof now that this is really Joseph. And look, he, he's not relieving the brothers of their sinful actions, but I also want you to note, he's not out for revenge. He's speaking compassionately to them. Verse 5, he says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing or harvest. So with the famine continuing on for another five years, he's saying there's not going to be any farming. And then he continues, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, meaning like an advisor to Pharaoh, and Lord of all his house and ruler of all the land of Egypt. Notice the reason that Joseph is able to be so compassionate and be forgiving toward his brothers is because of his understanding of God's providence. See, Joseph doesn't dismiss the sinful actions of his brothers. He says, you sold me as a slave. But then he says, but it was not you, but it was God who ultimately brought me to Egypt to preserve life. What's Joseph saying? He's saying that even though you brothers, you did this to me, ultimately it was God's sovereign will. He was ultimately the one who was in control of everything, including your sinful actions. And God was sovereignly moving everything, bringing about and accomplishing his plan to bring me here to Egypt to preserve life during this time of famine. And so consequently, because of his understanding of God's providence, he's able to forgive his brothers and speak to them so compassionately. Now, brothers and sisters, this is, an imp this is so important for us to understand. God's providence or his purposeful sovereignty. 
for us to understand it because it has bearing even in how we treat others. What we need to understand is God is sovereign over everything, including the sinful actions of the people that pe- people freely choose to make. But at the same time, God is also working all things, including that person who has sinned against me for my good. So you see, so sinful man is making their Sinful choices, but God is sovereign over that and he has ordained that. So when somebody sins against you or I, God has ordained it for your good and my good. So what does that mean for us as believers? We don't have to be angry or seek vengeance. See, if Joseph had nursed his grievances, you know, every day thinking, oh, this is what my brothers did, this is what my brothers did, and just sort of nursing it and nursing it and replaying it in his mind over and over and over and over again, and if he had then become bitter and angry for these 22 years for what his brothers had done to him, it would have poisoned his soul. He would not be the kind of man he is now. But it is precisely because Joseph understands God's providence, he is able to be compassionate and be forgiving. You know, I can champion God's sovereignty and his sovereign purposes. But when someone has sinned against me and I can't let go of my anger... You know what that shows? It shows that I don't really understand God's providence. Because God has sovereignly brought that person into my life for my good. So Joseph understands God's sovereignty and his sovereign purposes, and therefore he's able to forgive his brothers. Now Joseph continues to speak and he instructs his brother to give a message to his father and to bring him to Egypt. He says, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph. Again, emphasizing God's role. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. And therefore I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. So he's essentially saying, you're not going to be treated as slaves. You're going to be near me, dwelling in the land of Goshen. Now, the land of Goshen was a very fertile land. And in the midst of famine, he's saying, you will be provided for abundantly. 
And then he goes on, And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all, all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. So he's saying, tell my father, all of you brothers, and even Benjamin, the one that father loves so much, and the one that father trusts so much, that I have spoken to you with my very mouth, speaking the very Hebrew language now to you, not with an interpreter. Tell him of all this and the position that God has placed me in and bring him back quickly. Verse 14, then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and went, wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. See, many years ago, the brothers so hated Joseph, they could not even speak shalom to him. You remember that back in Genesis 37? They couldn't speak peaceably to him because they hated him so much. Now Joseph embraces each of them and they talk with him. The rift between Joseph and his brothers has been fixed and there's an intimacy now here in this, in this picture. It's really a beautiful picture of forgiveness and reconciliation. You know, this, given this is probably the greatest picture of forgiveness and reconciliation in the Old Testament, I just want us to just think through what is biblical forgiveness and reconciliation. You know, biblically speaking, forgiveness is, is pardon or cancelling a debt. So when you owe a debt and the payment, but the payment of that debt is taken by another and in that sense, it's cancelled then from the person who owes the debt. So it's like this, if, if someone takes your phone and happens to break your phone, you tell them, yes, I understand you've broken my phone, but you don't charge them for it. But you tell them, I'll bear the cost of that phone. You don't have to pay for it. That's cancelling the debt there. Because you have borne the cost. That's forgiveness. So what does it look like then, relationally speaking? Here's how one theologian described it. When you charge people or make people pay relationally for some wrong they have done. So where you either deprive the person, okay, that person has wronged me, so you deprive that person of your time or affection or attention. Or you go around slandering that other person. And it's that mentality of, I'm going to punish you and make you pay for what you've done to me. 
And so I'm going to make you pay in some way relationally this way for all the wrong that you've done to me. That's unforgiveness. So forgiveness is just the opposite of that. When you absorb the cost of being wronged. And you don't get the other person to pay relationally. You say the debt is cancelled. That's forgiveness. See, I want you to understand this. Forgiveness, it's not denying the wrong that's done. It's not ignoring it. It's not, you know, kind of putting it under a rug or even excusing it at all. It's fully recognizing the wrong that has been done to you, but instead of making the person pay that debt that's owed to you now, you are consciously choosing to absorb the the cost of whatever debt there is. Now, it could be the, the pain or the shame or the hurt that has cost that is the cost that you're absorbing because of what that person has done. So you absorb that and you cancel the debt and you forgive that person and say, no, that person is, doesn't have to pay for it. That's what forgiveness is. You know, in a fallen world, you can always have, you can't always have relationships that are restored. That's just the reality of living in a fallen world. But at the same time, we must still forgive anyone who offends us. So some in the biblical counseling world would call this the attitudinal forgiveness. Attitudinal forgiveness is having a forgiving heart where the one offended forgives the person, but there's no reconciliation. And that's just, you know, aspects of living in a fallen world. So for example, let's say a believer who is a victim forgives their abuser for what they've done. But it's too dangerous now for that believer to be in close proximity to that person, even though that person is forgiven. Or sometimes the offender may be someone who's dead. Or sometimes the offender may be someone who's not repentant. So in those cases, there's no reconciliation of the relationship. But at the same time, there is no holding of a grudge or bitterness. Only still a forgiving heart. But then there are other times when the two parties actually come together. And the sin is addressed, there's acknowledgement of sin, and forgiveness is sought, and forgiveness is given. And then as a result, now the relationship is restored, and there's actual reconciliation. And this is sometimes called as transactional forgiveness, because there's a transaction taking place. And unless there's this transactional forgiveness between two parties where sin is acknowledged and forgiveness sought and forgiveness given, there cannot be a reconciliation.
In Joseph's case, I would argue that we see both attitudinal forgiveness as well as transactional forgiveness. Remember way back, before the brothers even approached Joseph, Joseph named one of his sons as Manasseh, remember? And where he said, God has made me forget, or really forgive my father's household for all the wrong they have done. So there was an attitudinal forgiveness, a forgiveness from the heart, even though there wasn't a transactional forgiveness and there was no actual reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. But then, when the brothers approached Joseph and he saw how they acknowledged their sin and how repentant they were, he absorbs the cost of being wronged. What was the cost to Joseph? All the hurt and the pain of being disowned by his brothers, treated as a slave, treated unjustly and thrown in the pit for so many years. That was the cost Joseph had to bear. And so what you see is then Joseph doesn't exact vengeance or make his brothers pay in any way relationally. What does he do instead? He grants them forgiveness. And now there is genuine reconciliation between the brothers and Joseph. Okay, now that we've looked through a theology of forgiveness and reconciliation, what does this mean for us as believers? Well, it means this. When someone sins against us, and they come to us acknowledging their guilt and their shame and seeking forgiveness, we must grant them forgiveness. We should not seek to make them pay. And there should be a genuine reconciliation and we should never ever hold it against them after that. But what about when someone sins against us but they're not repentant? And they don't seek forgiveness. Well, we still have to have that heart of forgiveness, attitudinal forgiveness. Even though there might not be a reconciled relationship. We, won't, we don't in any way seek vengeance. Now, I'm not saying that... I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that we can't follow God-ordained means of justice like going to the authorities when somebody has abused someone or something like that, right? So those are God-ordained means. But what I am saying is we don't seek vengeance by ourselves. Instead, we trust that God is sovereign and He's able to bring about the justice for the wrong done. Christian, I want to ask you, do you... Do you believe that God is sovereign and bring to justice all the wrongs that have been done to you? Well, if you do, then we can't retaliate or become bitter. Because that's the God we say we trust in. And he will bring to justice in his own time. 
either in this life or the next. And so what that also means is, in, in cases where there is no reconciliation in the relationship, it doesn't mean, therefore, then we don't forgive the person. No, 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 not at all. We still forgive the person attitudinally from the heart. Precisely because we recognize God is sovereign and he'll bring about his justice. But from my side, attitudinally from the heart, I have a forgiving spirit and I have forgiven that person. So here we see Joseph revealing himself to his brothers and a beautiful picture of forgiveness and reconciliation coming about. This brings us to our second point, that's Jacob's invitation to live in Egypt. Verses 16 through to 28. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. So Pharaoh got word from, about Joseph's brothers, that they had come, and about the loud wailing. Some messengers have come to Joseph and his household. Obviously, no one's heard the conversation Joseph had with his brothers because no one was there in the room. But Joseph knows, oh, the brothers have come, there's wailing, and there's something going on where there's a fixing of that relationship. And it says, it pleased Pharaoh that his brothers had come to Joseph. And so now, Pharaoh now extends a formal invitation to Joseph's starving family. You know, as, as a sort of good gesture or, or gratitude to Joseph for all that he has done to save the people in Egypt and elsewhere. So because Joseph has been so faithful in Egypt, this is Pharaoh's reward, so to speak, his sense of gratitude towards Joseph and his family. And we could even say that behind the scenes, that this is God's favor on Joseph. And this is God moving the heart of Pharaoh to make this formal invitation to Joseph's family to come and dwell in Egypt. So verse 17, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt from your little, for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. So Pharaoh says, this is the message you need to give to your brothers. Load up your donkeys, take more wagons for all your family members, and bring them all back to Egypt. In fact, he goes on to say, you don't have to bring any goods from Canaan. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. In fact, two times Pharaoh says it. And it's literally the where he says, I will give you the good of the land, is how it is literally. 
Not something that's rubbish or mediocre, but I will give you the best of the land or the good of the land. Verse 21. So the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. This again, it's just magnifying this picture of a reconciled relationship. Remember, because of their hatred for Joseph, many years ago, the brothers had stripped Joseph of his special coat. And now, he is clothing them, giving them new clothes. And he gives Benjamin more. Why? Because Benjamin is his blood brother. Same father and same mother. And nobody is upset about it. And so these are brothers. It's a picture of where these brothers who are totally restored and reconciled to one another. Verse 23. To his father he sent as follows. Ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. And then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So aside from the donkeys that they came on, Joseph gives his brothers another ten male donkeys loaded with gifts, and then also grain and bread, and also ten female donkeys, possibly because female donkeys, you get milk from them as well. And then he sends his brothers away, but as he sends them away, he says, don't quarrel on the way. Now, why would he say that? Well, it's probably because when they have to go back home to Father Jacob, they have to explain what happened. So they might be tempted to say, hey, you were the one with the plan. No, but you were the one who, who actually carried out the plan. But no, you changed the plan and you did that. And that's why we came back to Egypt and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's easy to start a quarrel this way. And so Joseph says, don't quarrel on the way, but take all these things with you and go to Father Jacob. Twenty-five. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan, to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. So the brothers, they are forgiven of their guilt, they can speak the truth now that they had hidden for so many years. And they excitedly say, Joseph is still alive and he's ruler over the land of Egypt. You know, in their voice, you can almost hear it. They, there's no envy right now. But they're rejoicing in the fact that this is Joseph and he is ruler of the land. 
Now, when you think of Jacob's response, you know, think of Jacob. For 22 years, he has not seen Joseph. And he's been in a state of grief. And he was made to believe that Joseph was dead. And given generally how his sons have not been particularly trustworthy, when they say to him, Joseph is not dead, but he is alive, and even more so, he's now the ruler of Egypt, he doesn't believe them. His heart's just numb. It's like, yeah, whatever. Verse 27. But when they told him all the words which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. So as Jacob continues to listen to them and everything that Joseph has said to them, so he listens to all this, and then he looks around, and he sees all these wagons from Egypt. You know, one commentator said it's, it's like seeing like black SUV cars all outside your house from the prime minister. And he's, Jacob is now putting two and two together. You know, my sons, yeah, they could have stolen some grain, perhaps. Maybe a cup here and there. But it would be impossible to steal all these wagons from Egypt and still be alive and be standing here before me. There is enough evidence in front of Jacob. And now his heart is revived. It's almost like now his heart is beginning to pump hard now. And he's getting excited and he believes what they say. And he says, verse 28, And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive, and I will go and see him before I die. After all these years, the son that he thought was dead is now alive, and Jacob believes it, and he's ready to go to Egypt. I mean, what a, what a wonderful thing it would have been for Jacob. I mean, this whole, whole chapter is so emotional and so beautiful in so many different ways. But you know, even beyond the, the beauty of what is happening in the immediate context, what we're beginning to see is also that God is beginning to resolve the problems that have come about as a result of the fall in Genesis 3. See, because of sin coming into the world, in the book of Genesis, what we see is there's a constant conflict between brothers. It started with Cain killing his brother Abel. Then Abraham and his brother, or his nephew to be exact, there's conflict. Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers. But now here we see, through God's chosen deliverer, Joseph, 
God is reconciling brothers to one another. And he's making them into one united family, the family of God. And the reconciliation is not just horizontal between brothers, but it is also a vertical reconciliation where the brothers are reconciled back to God through God's chosen servant, Joseph. The other thing that we see at the start of Genesis is how, because of the fall, God pronounced a curse on the land. And part of that curse on the land was famine in the land. And where it would be difficult to get food. And we've seen a few instances already in the book of Genesis where there's been famine. And now as there's worldwide famine like never before and the shadow of death hangs over this family, God is going to preserve the life of this family. And he's going to bring them to dwell in the best of the land of Egypt. Remember I said it's literally the good of the land. You know what that is echoing? The good of the land of Eden. It's the same wordings. God is beginning this restoration, reconciling process. They're all hints of what he's beginning to do through his chosen servant. And really, Joseph is but a mere shadow of the greater servant of God, Jesus Christ. The one who came down into this world as the suffering servant, who was rejected by his own, and then thought to be dead, and yet after three days he rose from the dead, where he is alive, he is alive, he is alive was the announcement. So unbelievable. And now there is forgiveness for all those who will come to Jesus in faith. And through Jesus, there's a reconciliation back to God and back to his people. And one day, Jesus will bring his people into this new Eden where he will restore everything and we will dwell with him forever. And there are already signs and hints of that happening in this very chapter as Genesis is coming to a close of how God will accomplish that. Brothers and sisters, I, I just want you to just really think about the fact that God has forgiven us as his children at a great price, at the cost of his son, Jesus Christ. Where Jesus had to die and pay the punishment for our sins. 
so that we wouldn't have to pay for those sins, and so that we could be reconciled back to God in Christ Jesus. I mean, do you understand the cost of what it costs God to reconcile us back to himself? Do you understand that, Christian? The fact that because of Christ, we have been forgiven of our sins. And it's not just past sins. It's past, present, and future. And it's not just that we have been forgiven, but we have been eternally reconciled back to God in Christ Jesus. See, sometimes what happens is we forget what it costs God the payment that God had to make. And so sometimes what happens is, in our Christian walks, when we feel apathetic, you know, it's been a few days or a few weeks, and I'm just generally feeling apathetic toward God. Or perhaps we, we see we're failing in a certain area. Perhaps in our in our families, in our, with our siblings, or with our spouses, or with our children. Or in some other way, we, we find ourselves failing. Or maybe, you know, we want to consistently read the Word each day, and, uh, and because of various reasons, we are unable to do so. Or we want to consistently pray and spend time in prayer and study God's Word, but we're failing because of some other reason. And yes, we recognize it's wrong and it's right for us to think that it's wrong. But you know what we do sometimes? Then we punish ourselves. Where we are angry with ourselves or we become more and more morose. Or we sulk in our guilt and stay there as a way of punishing ourselves. Almost like we are making payment. But Christian brother and sister, I need you to understand this. The fact that God has forgiven you in Christ means that he has paid it all in Jesus Christ so you wouldn't have to pay He has paid it all. Do you recognize the cost of forgiveness? How much it costs God to forgive you and reconcile you? Well, if you do, as you see your failings, what do you need to do? While you come and confess your sin, come to him and he will be tender with you for you will see afresh his faithfulness and his forgiveness in Jesus Christ as you confess and repent of your sin and come to him. Oh, this is a wonderful thing to know 
that God has forgiven us in Christ and the cost of forgiveness. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who is not a follower of Jesus. I want to tell you, friend, you don't need to pay the payment for your sin. You don't need to punish yourself in some way. In fact, you cannot. Recognize that you stand guilty and helpless before God. Recognize that Christ is the only one that can save you. And if you believe that Christ is truly your Lord and Savior, then I would say to you, turn from your sin and continue to believe and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ and follow after him, for that is the very evidence that you truly follow him. For those of us who are believers, for those of us who recognize, yes, it, it cost God. He paid the price for my sin in its entirety in Christ Jesus. Therefore, when somebody sins against you, particularly within the family of God or starting with the family of God, what are we to do? Ephesians 4.32 where we are called to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. The basis of our forgiving others is the very gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we forgive one another, even with this, within this family of God, and live as one people of God, even when we sin against one another, it upholds our beautiful Savior and what he has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how faithful you are. We thank you for your word that truly does illuminate our minds, that brings us truths about you so we can understand you and your ways. We thank you for your forgiveness, the great cost of forgiveness that you took on yourself so that we could be forgiven and be reconciled back to you. And so, Lord, in light of that, in light of the fact that we are blood-bought forgiven people of God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let us then, as we, as someone sins against, as anyone who would sin against us, we would forgive them just as you have forgiven us in Christ. Father, we pray that these words would not merely be head knowledge, but it would continue to do a work in our hearts and it would affect the way we live our lives each day, living in the light of the fact that we have been reconciled to you and we've been reconciled to your people and help us to live that way. We pray all this in Jesus' name.